Hello, this is Russell Davis, investigating the art of artists. And the artist this time is a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and the ever-present front woman of, and constant element in, The Pretenders, Chrissy Hind. It seemed she might stay within the protective carapace of The Pretenders throughout her career. But just lately, through the medium of her latest album, she's been admitting that a solo artist is what she's become. Many fans have admired her as such for years. Much of her career was made here in Britain with British musicians, whom we'll be talking about. Chrissy Hyde, welcome. Thank you. As, as people say, you're part of the soundtrack of our lives and, and all that. What's the soundtrack of your life? I mean, what would you put on after a heavy day to convince you that the world is OK, really, and it'll probably look better in the morning? Oh, Purple Haze? Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, something like that. Um, yeah, something yeah. with a bit of, you know... Yeah. A bit of a substance. But um, essentially guitar. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the soundtrack of my life would be guitar-based rock bands, I suppose. Yeah. But I came up and, uh, you know, I think what I, I like to think was a very auspicious time when rock was in its, uh, not in its beginnings, but in its heyday. Mm-hmm. Because it started in the 50s. Um, I can remember my brother, who's a jazz musician, even saying, oh, Christy, you know, in 10 years' time, no one will have ever, they won't even remember rock and roll. Mm. And it's the one time he made me cry. <laughs> I made him cry loads of times with rocks and things, but yeah. uh, he really got me that time. Let, and in let, fact, let, he was wrong. Let, let, let's go back to those 50s, because uh, your early times, for one reason, because Akron, Ohio is, isn't one of the music hubs people normally think of, not in this country. But you still keep a home there, is that right? Not mm-hmm. so much now. No, no. Uh, uh-huh. When my parents got really old, I started a vegan restaurant there, so I would have something to do and spend more time there, and also have somewhere to eat. Yeah. But now that's that's all gone now. But it was a really thriving place industrially at that time. It was rubber it was city. Of, yes, it? it was. In fact, uh, Washington D.C. and Akron at one point were the two fastest growing cities. Yeah. In Ohio, which is one of the original thirteen states, and Akron was uh, uh, con- called the rubber capital of uh, the world because yeah. of all the rubber factories. They all the main rubber factors, Goodyear, Goodrich. If you ever see a Goodyear blimp, that's right. still homed in Akron, Ohio. And you went to Firestone High, Firestone School, High which School, which says tires and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for music, you'd need to go to Cleveland. Yeah? I certainly went to Cleveland for a lot of bands. There was also the Civic Theater in Akron, Ohio, where I saw Jackie Wilson on stage. So this was back when those uh, sort of R&B acts had reviews and they would go across the country with like, you know, 15 people on the bill. Yeah. I, I've read you didn't have much social life at all. I mean, in terms of school, you, what you did was go and see bands. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I had a social life, but I didn't have an academic life. Right. Um, you know, I went to school begrudgingly, yeah. um, but I wasn't very good at it. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I was kind of a natural born failure. You know, I didn't I had no ambition. I didn't care if I succeeded or not in school because I didn't I just wasn't going to happen for me. I was lived in terror of what my parents yeah. on report card days, of course. But yeah. even that wasn't enough to give me the incentive. Nothing. And then, of course, you know, when rock and roll came along and I was around 14 when the first Beatles album, that's why I say it was auspicious. I was at the right age at the right time. Mm. And then it all unfolded, and I got waylaid by rock and roll then. Now, you attended Kent State University, which to my generation causes a frisson that name. But it's a name, probably generations that have come since have no idea what we're talking about. But uh, we're talking about one of the defining moments in American politics. Um, Well, it certainly uh, was a moment. I don't know what it defined. 
It was just... Um, Kent State University was one of the very anti-war universities, um, and it was big in cinematography. It had a good art department. I started going there when I was 17 because with my flunky grades, I couldn't have got into anywhere. Yeah. But because it was a state school, they were obliged to take me. Uh, so I started two weeks after I graduated—well, I got out of high school. Um and then there was a protest uh, It took place over a weekend when uh, the president, President Nixon, went into Cambodia, which he had said he wouldn't. And yeah, so uh, there was a big protest. He said he was going to end the war and instead he widened it. Yeah. By, yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, and then over that weekend, uh, the students, myself included, participated in something where we burned down the ROTC building. That was the residence in training on campus sort of military presence, which everyone yeah. uh, wanted off. So we got rid of it. We just burnt the building down. Then they brought in the National Guard who were down the road for a trucker strike in Ravenna, Ohio. And um, there was a curfew on the uh, town on the Sunday. Anyway, it was a four-day uh, sort of uh, event, if you want to call it that. And it culminated in four students getting shot and killed yeah. uh, on an afternoon when everyone was going back to school. And, mm. uh, you know, it was a mistake. I don't think there was a conspiracy involved. Someone just no. handed these kids who were all like 18 and 19 who were yeah. National Guardsmen. I, uh, you know, I left Ohio pretty, mm, I guess a couple years after that, I left the States altogether. Yeah. But you came here, and as I understand it, uh, music journalism played some part in that because you'd been reading the NME. How how come? Yeah, well, you know, I got the NME even in a drugstore. You could get it in Akron, Ohio, so I would get back issues. And I had pictures of Iggy Pop on my wall when I was, you know, I had a little job drawing coats of arms or some some bogus company I was working for. And I had this article uh, saying how amazing Iggy Pop was. Well, he was my hero at the time, and no one else seemed to know who he was. I'd been working with waitresses, and they all like Neil Diamond. And, you know, this yeah. is around the time when Bowie first came over to the States. Anyway, I eventually ended up in uh, in London and tie a yellow, yellow, yellow ribbon around the old oak tree was number one in the charts when I arrived. So I didn't really get my Iggy fix that I was looking for. No. But I did manage to... Uh, meet the guy who wrote the article, who I didn't realize he'd written it. It was Nick Kent uh-huh. at some student party in Acton. You know, I didn't know anyone in town. but um, And I went to a pub one night and was talking about an album, and he introduced me to the assistant editor who said, Ian McDonald this was, who said, yeah. you should write for us. So I was never a writer, and I wasn't a journalist either. I just was, you know, blagging it, really. Yeah. But there was a a confusing time. Uh, uh, well, it, was, it was partly to do with visas, I guess, running out and, and permits and things, and you had to go home, and then you came to France as well. Mm-hmm. And you were, I think you appeared at the Olympia, Olympia in Paris, yeah, which is a big-time venue, yeah, so was. you must have been doing okay. Well, I was uh, singing with the band. Their singer had dropped out for some reason, and they got me back over. I'd been back to Cleveland to get in a band, and then I'd driven out with some girls out to... Uh, Tucson, Arizona, and that's where I got um, a call to get back over to Paris. I got a telegram. Um, oh, and, well, um, that dates it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I sat in and played with this band, the Frenchies, in the Olympia, yeah. Yeah. 
You dealt with Malcolm McLaren in London, didn't oh, yeah, you? Oh, yeah, I worked time. for him. As many people did. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, in the shop. It was this SEX shop. Well, it was it? before that. It was called uh, Craft Must Wear Clothes, But the Truth Loves to Go Naked when I worked there. Right, okay. Yeah, catchy time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was your assessment of him? Because he, he's been gone four years now, but I've never read a summary of him that sounds convincing. So. Oh, well, Malcolm uh, Malcolm and Vivian, my assessment was I, I really looked up to them. I thought they were amazing. Vivian um, Westwood we're talking yeah. about here, yeah. Um, they were a few years older than me. Vivian is 10 years older, and Malcolm was probably about seven years older than me. So I looked up to them because I still was from that generation gap where you didn't know people that weren't your own age. So they were... Um, and the thing that struck me about them was that they never took drugs and they hadn't been hippies and they weren't into all the kind of music I was. So they were kind of like intellectuals. It was like sort of hanging out with, I don't know, like a professor or some, but someone that you, you know, could look up to and talk to. Yeah. Um, something I'd never really felt before. Um, and they were very creative in a, you know, like uh, in a way I, I mean, their shop had been catering to teddy boys and things. This was a part of the culture that was all new to me. I mean, I was from Ohio. I didn't know anything. Um, and these Teds would come in the shop, and then I started piercing my ears a lot. And, you know, that's where—this is pre-punk. Uh, and Malcolm, he saw things differently. I never saw and had met anyone like him before. Vivian looked up to him a lot, too, although I think maybe Vivian was maybe the more creative one, actually, but she wouldn't take credit for anything back then for some reason. Um, And Malcolm, he used to laugh a lot. That's what I remember about him. He thought things were funny, but not what you would expect, because he just saw things in his own way. He was a real unique character. I admired him a lot. I looked up to him, Um, and I tried to do a couple of bands with him uh, after my short time working in the shop. Um, and he wanted to help me get something together, but nothing really panned out. Well, there was a lot of band building, wasn't there? Why, why did the one that eventually did work, work? Because when it came together, it, it came together so spectacularly, mm. I think, in your mind, that you sort of couldn't stop laughing. It was just brilliant. The good thing about it was that because I was a girl in the punk scene, you know, you couldn't really talk about that or say, oh, you're good for a girl or she can play for a girl because it was all about non-discrimination. So I could kind of sneak in there and it wasn't a novelty that I was a girl, which would have held me back because I was a little shy about playing and, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't want to be a girl. So I didn't want anyone to talk about that. So that was the good thing. But what held me back where I didn't fit in is maybe I was a couple years older than most of these punk kids and I had a different musical background. In fact, I had a much more musical background, truth be told. You know, I grew up with Bobby Womack. I grew up with American radio. So I had all this uh, different regional stuff I could get on my radio from LAC, Nashville, Tennessee, or Memphis, uh, Chicago. I had CKLW, all these different radio stations yes. that played. You know, I was a BB King. I had all the West Coast stuff. Where I was, because I had no scene, all I had was the radio. So my education came from all, you know, four corners of the, yeah. uh, you know, of the United States. And then when I came over here, these kids kind of grew up on, you know, I don't know, John Rotten liked Vandergraft Generator. Um, but he was always an odd bird. And the rest of them listened to Roxy Music and, you know, Mott the Hoople. And, uh, you know, yeah. I think that set me apart a little bit because I had more... Mm-hmm. Uh, musicality, and I don't mean that in a... You know, I've, uh, the only thing I had in common, none of us could play, so at least I had that going for me. Yeah. But then the Pretenders became the Pretenders, and 
But there was a self-destructive strain in them, obviously, which came out fairly soon, all too soon. Was that uh, clearly there from the beginning? Well, everyone was taking drugs, and that came out of the 60s, you know, when yeah. it all started, you know, and then it just, there's only one way it goes with drugs. Um, and I include alcohol as a drug. So, you know, it, it, it only progressively goes down as it did over the next 30 years. Yeah. And now I think it's even a little bit out of fashion, which is finally, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, there's always the dark side. We were making pop music to go on the radio. Yeah. Uh, but we were, you know, a rock band, yes. and that was just part of it. But the certainty about it was that you were going to be resolutely there, which you were. I mean, for years and years and years, you were the element that, that stayed. Uh, and you stuck with the band idea. You didn't become, you know, Chrissy Hind and her backing band, which many, no. people, many people have suggested that over <laughs> they the They sure did. Yeah. Um, and accused me of it, but yeah. it was never like that. What happened is when Pete and Jimmy and Martin devised the band, The Pretenders, I always—well, I wouldn't even be photographed without them. I would never be singled out. Um, then when Pete and Jimmy were gone within a year, I was faced with a dilemma because I didn't want to start over because, you know, we worked very hard to get it—to get our songs together. And I didn't think it—you know, I, I felt— that Jimmy would feel very let down if I let it go because, you know, it would kind of be like his fault. Mm. And, uh, you know, I thought mm. I had at least keep the music alive. Yeah. I, I f had a very strong sense of doing what Jimmy would want me to do, and I really stuck to that for about 10 years, and then it started to fade away. Mm -hmm. So all of my musical decisions and what I did was always based on Jimmy sort of, you know, having a word in my ear at all times. Yeah. Brass in pocket. I say it like that because this is Yorkshire, <laughs> Yorkshire brass, isn't it? And yeah, it was actually. That's right. It, it was, was an uh, overhearing, wasn't it? So you heard somebody I say? heard it was some, a band called Strange Ways, and they were from, uh, where were they? We're, we're from up there. Strange Ways would be Manchester, mm -hmm. I guess. That's the prison there, yeah. yeah. And, and somebody said, they got were, brass We were sitting around. My manager, Dave Hill, at the time, he was uh, looking after them. They were on a little label called Anchor Records, and uh, Strange Ways had a record out called... Um, Wasting time. Uh huh. Anyway, we were sitting having dinner on one of our first shows. We went up north, and I think we were supporting them. And one of them said, "Did you take my? I can't do the accent, but did you get my trousers from dry cleaner? Where was there any brass and pocket?" Great. Well, is, is it true you were against, very much against, this being uh, released at the time? Yeah. I, well, I, you know, I didn't like it very much. I wasn't that keen on it. It was one of the collabor few collaborations I did at the time because mainly I brought the songs in on my own. And that's what I did like about it. Jimmy played this great riff in the studio one day, and I went, wow, what was that? And I think I managed to tape it or something so I could write a song around it. That was great. I wish we'd had time to develop that because collaboration is the most fun thing. Yeah. Um, but I think I felt I didn't really like my voice. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't think I was. I didn't like my contribution to it. And I said that goes out over my dead body. When the Pretenders were at that first peak, did did everybody know everybody else in the London scene? I, that had been the case, I think, in the sixties, of the Beatles and the Stones and everything. Everybody intermingled. But I guess it was more fragmented by the time you were... Well, the punk scene, I think there were punk scenes throughout England. You know, the Coventry had one, and they had all that sort of ska, two-tone. There was all these different factions everywhere. The London scene was quite small. Uh, it was everyone that went down the Roxy for about six months before that turned from a sort of speed den to a 
heroin den and it was all over. But um, the beauty of the pretenders was that they were from Hereford and they were not in the London scene. So they were the odd ones out. And, you know, if you don't live in London, generally you don't like London. Um, and that's just a fact of life. So when Jimmy Scott had no time for punk anyway, he thought it wasn't musical. He wasn't interested in anger. He just wanted something that was melodic. Yeah. Uh, and so we got together. I met Pete first. Um, and that was actually good for me to be with someone who, because I thought I was, you know, a hard-ass, you know, yeah. punk. I wanted to be a punk. But, you know, I was in sort of denial of my sort of any melodic... Mm. inclinations I had and Jimmy brought that out and Jimmy also said look I'm I'm not a lead guitar player I don't play lead guitar and I made him found out you know that yeah. he, he was one of the greatest lead guitar players of all time and he was in my estimation one of the last of the great English guitar heroes yeah I'm still puzzling over how they managed to come from Hereford because you know a sleepier nicer little cathedral town you couldn't imagine but that's how it works it's when there's not that much going on and yeah. again this is pre-internet so people could use their imaginations I think that's that to me is the tragedy of computers and, and yeah. internet is that kids are looking at screens all the time and uh, it's giving you information but that's doing nothing. Your imagination is just on hold then. Yeah. Uh, so when there's not much going on and you've got a guitar, mm. then, you know, you can have a lot of room for invention and discovery. And that's where all the grapes come from, from nowhere. Yeah. Where did the kinks enter the story? And your personal story, of course, well, since, since you and Ray Davis were a couple for so long. Well, that was way after this. But... Um, the the Kinks, I loved the first Kinks album when I was about 14, 15, and the song Stop Your Sobbing was on there. So one day when I was uh, rehearsing with the early band, The Pretenders, down in a basement in Eddie Ryan's drum clinic, he had a basement I used to rehearse in, in Covent Garden, and I mentioned Stop Your Sobbing, and Pete and Jimmy, no one seemed to know what I was talking about. And I said, come on, man, it was on the first Kinks album. No one had heard it. And mm -hmm. I was amazed that it turned out it was kind of an obscure song. Mind you, this is still only about 10 years since, you know, it seemed like a long time back then, 10 yeah. years. Um, and then we included it on our first demo. And then I was trying to convince Jimmy Scott to leave his life in Hereford and move to London uh, and I didn't think he liked me very much because I still had that attitude that he wasn't keen on. Uh, but after I heard him play, I knew I needed him. I knew I had to have him after I heard him play on our demos. So he loved Nick Lowe, and I thought, ah, oh, that's perfect. If I get Nick Lowe to produce our, one of our songs, then Jimmy will definitely join us. So we took the demo. Pete and I took the demo over to Nick, and he listened to it. Nick was like Jimmy. He didn't like angry punk stuff very much. So out of all the songs on the demo, he said, I want to get in on that Sandy Shaw song. And it was Stop Your Sobbing, of course. Mm -hmm. That's why it became our first single. And that's why Jimmy Scott was in the band. Right, right. It's funny, isn't it, that Ray now, Ray Davis CBE, is this establishment figure who does, uh, you know, um, choral works and musicals and stuff. It, uh, well, he's, it changed you know, life. Mm -hmm. amazingly talented Yeah. Uh, you know, individual. Now, by, by the mid-80s, um, we had the situation where the Pretenders were just you with the hand-picked accompaniment, really, from the 1986 album Get Close, for example, which was very much based on you and Robbie McIntosh on guitar, and everything else flexible. Uh, was that the way you wanted it by then, or had it just happened? 
when I met Robbie, Robbie actually was another one that was introduced to me by Jimmy Scott right before he died. He mentioned that he had met a kid player that was great and he wanted to maybe include him in some live work, he said. And I said, yeah, yeah, let's bring him in. And then Jimmy died and I thought, well, that's my guitar player. Yeah. Um, and Robbie uh, was a, I mean, that was, the, those were hard uh, shoes to fill. He thought he was going to come in to augment. He didn't know he was going to be replacing Jimmy. Yeah. But we had a many Wonderful years together. It sounds, yes. it sounds <laughs> like a, an ex-husband, but yes. we did. The and folks it was who a, live on the hill. Yeah. yeah, well, for me, that's what marriage has always been about. It's always been a musical thing. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, it was an interesting track in, in several ways because it's played with this smacking backbeat to it. But if you slow it right down, what you've got is a very workable romantic ballad in a way. Yeah, um, don't get me wrong. Um, well, I mean, I've analyzed the song since because I... I uh, had to talk about it. Um, first of all, it was kind of inspired by John McEnroe. Uh, I thought, oh, maybe I could write a song for John because I knew he liked music and he liked playing and everything. I wasn't really writing it for him, and I wasn't a tennis fan, but I used to watch the stuff on the news when he got in trouble, as we all did. Yeah. And I thought, oh, but he's actually a nice guy. So, you know, I think the idea of don't get me wrong, I could imagine this guy who can't, you know, who loses it, but he, you know, doesn't mean to be that obnoxious. Yeah. Whose idea was it to base the video on um, the Avengers? Was oh, that I love the Avengers. Of yours? Yeah. I love yeah. the Avengers. In fact, in Cleveland, they used to put reruns on, uh, you know, the old Emma Peel ones. And if they took it off, there would always be like petitions yeah. uh, to bring it back. And you even have Patrick McNee there in yeah. the original footage. It's yeah. worked in with you. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pioneering way of doing that. So but it's very, <laughs> very good. In a character role, as well as singing, you were uh, acting. You did an yeah, episode. Oh, terrible. It was about, about that time, mid-80s, that everybody started to call people survivors, a dismal word. I always think, but uh, anybody living was called a survivor. And uh, you can see what people might have meant in your case, because what really survived, and it's remarkable, is the voice. Because so many rock and roll voices become scratchy and gravelly and all, it all goes. But yours is, is wonderfully well preserved, if you can hmm. put it like that. How, no, how did you do I've, that? I've, I've must have been a lot of preservatives, preservatives <laughs> in the drugs. I, I really don't know. It's just luck. I think there's a way that you can sing where you don't really hurt your voice. Yeah. And I uh, was always pretty self-conscious. I met a guy, um, I think his name was Barry Jones, in the punk days that I tried to get in a band with. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but the thing is, I don't really like women singing rock and roll. And I, I walked out of the squat and I thought, hmm, God, I don't either. And I thought about it. I just... Hearing a woman belt or sing too loud is really off-putting to me. You know, no one wants to hear a woman screaming at them. Mm. And I was always very self-conscious not to, you know, over-amplify things. So I, I like everything real, real quiet. And one of my mentors singing-wise, I suppose, was Jimi Hendrix. And he had a very conversational way of uh, almost talking while he sang. Not rapping, but, I mean, he sang. Yes, yeah. And, um, of course, Dylan sang in a very conversational way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I guess those are the people that I, I was listening to a lot. Yeah. It's still a rare mix. You get this sort of tenderness in the foreground, and then all hell is breaking loose behind, you know, and the drummer's going berserk and everything. It's, it works tremendously well. Another thing that began to start up was the tremendous career you've still got as a collaborating artist. You mentioned getting more sociable and that sort of thing, appearing with people in duets, joining bands for one-offs and that sort of thing. Um, 
And you were experienced, of course, at blending <laughs> this in. This really is a this is your life kind well, of well, thing. Well, it is, it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> blending in and in some cases taking over, you'd done a lot of that in the, in the past. So, And one of the duet experiences you had, or maybe you didn't, that's what I wanted to ask you about, really, okay. was your appearance on Frank Sinatra's second oh, duets yeah. album, which... I suppose it's one way of instant history, isn't it? Because you're uh, writing yourself in the history books. It was his last studio album, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that anybody on Duets 2 actually did meet Sinatra, did they? No, He's always on I tape. didn't. But no. I mean, if you're asked to do something like that, there are certain things in this life that you just, you're never going to, you can't say no. No. It just would be wrong. Mm-hmm. So when I was asked, would you like to do a thing on just Frank Sinatra's record? I mean, that's, you don't even consider that. No, right. You, that's a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, but you must have, there must have been negotiation about the number, I guess. You did like being a lady. This was a problem for me because I've never been a fan of musicals. And when I was a kid, I never watched musicals. I found them really embarrassing. I'd seen a couple. Yeah. Um, but mainly I couldn't, even the Wizard of Oz, when they started singing, I always kind of squirmed. So, you know, I backed off of musicals. And I'd never seen Guys and Dolls or any of those musicals. So I listened to a few of Frank's songs, and this one, Luck Be a Lady, I, was the one I ended up with. Yeah. And I'm also not very good at prep, so I wasn't very prepared. I went into a basement in Soho to do my vocal, and I just said, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine, and hadn't listened to it um, ahead of time. And it was kind of not really in a very good key for me. It was like I had to sing part of it an octave lower, and then... Mm. Um, I mean, I think I got away with it. Yes, and that was when the heyday of these collaborations began. I, I suppose commercially, the one with UB40 was uh, "I Got You, Babe." That was the biggest, was it? I guess. I guess I think, that, sales. I think that was. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. Uh, um, uh, no, no, they didn't. <laughs> really? Ali Campbell still claims that was his idea, but they'd never even heard the song. And that's a, a Sonny and Cher song. Mm-hmm. And of course, you also sang with Cher on another yeah, collaboration. Uh-huh. Uh, what and was Nana that? Cherry, Love, that Love was Love, a, yeah, yeah, for Love a comic relief. Yes. So these things all began to mm-hmm. intertwine. And some of them were momentary things like duetting with Cheryl Crow in New York in, yes. the, in the park. There. We love Cheryl. And then there were more deliberate ones like uh, the duet with uh, Emmylou Harris on the Graham Parsons album. And, Amazing. Uh, yeah. One of the great singers of all time and great songwriters. Yeah. yeah. And I was on Mick Ronson's last album too, yeah. Heaven and Hull. Um, and the the Amy Lou one also helped to bring the Vietnam thing round in a circle because that record raised quite a lot of money for the Vietnam veterans' uh, anti-landmine campaign, right. as yeah, I recall. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. it all ties in. Yeah, but when it comes to campaigns, most of your effort goes into animal protection of one sort or another. Yeah, it's all related to the vegetarian thing, which is a very big subject, right. and it's all about, well, it's an environmental concern. It's, yeah. uh, it's an everything concern. It affects everything. So that's been my, uh, you know, everyone has their belief system or their cause, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's good to stick to your thing you know about. Yeah. One other thing you did there locally, because this is a lively area we're talking about, was getting elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which uh, I'd forgotten till I looked it up. It's in Cleveland. So that brought you back again to your yeah, beginnings. Yeah, unfortunately, because I was really happy in living in Brazil. And my manager called. She goes, look, I'm going to have to tell you sooner or later. I might as well tell you now. You've been inducted. Yes. So that was my... Yeah. My time in Brazil was curtailed. While this time, let's talk about Stockholm, your new album, uh, made there with Bjorn Itling, and with something of the dance feel of ABBA about it, which is yeah. surprising. Well, that was that was down to Bjorn, thank God, because it's something I always felt, ooh, I don't want to say it out loud, but I, I felt 
I never really got there with uh, what I was doing in the past, mm-hmm. you know, with the rhythms. I love dancing. I love dance music. And I really love, um, you know, that whole E scene and the, all trance, all of it, house, rave. I loved it. Um, not so much disco, but reggae, all the English stuff that was when all that rave stuff was influenced by reggae rather than disco. Yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and Bjorn was very mindful. All, most of the tracks we did started with, you know, uh, the rhythm. And I think that's the, the starting point for a song. And I was uh, appreciated that because instead of me with my little guitar, my sad little guitar. Yeah. It's strange after all this time that woman with guitar on stage, I mean, front and centre, is still, well, it's it's not shockingly new. It's been around since Memphis Minnie's time. But it's still a powerful assertion of something, isn't it? Control, I guess. Um, Control. That's not a word I would use. Mm. I just have the doesn't ears. Sound very nice, I just have the ears. I've never been about controlling it. It's just that I can... Um, well, you've done some hiring and firing in your time. and you know, Yeah, but you know what? These guys can tell as soon as they walk in the room that, you know, you know, they can see that I don't really have any technical vocabulary. I'm not really, you know, I can't really play very good. I'm not, you know, I refer to the dots on the guitar. I'll say to a bass player, don't play above the third dot. I'll say to a drummer, can you not hit that drum? You know, I'm not really, they can see what I am. Mm. But what they really can hear is that I make them sound better. And that's what they respond to because I listen to the radio more than they did. I've listened to a lot of radio. So when I hear it and it sounds right, I can say, that's it. And then they listen back and they go, wow, she was right. I sound fantastic. And what does a guy want from a woman? He just wants to be appreciated. And that's what I'm good at. Excellent. Chrissy Hyde, this has been a great revelation in many, many ways. And thank you for it. Thank you. Coming from a generation noted for wildness and vulnerability, both at once, she stood in harm's way and lost some important friends to the rock lifestyle. But now she strikes me as impressively settled in her outlook and still allergic to complacency. She dislikes the idea of exerting control over others, but in putting useful limits on herself, she's clearly succeeded. My thanks to her for what I would call that meaty conversation, were it not for her preferences, and thanks too to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This has been a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio, and on 88 to 91 FM.